On Sundays for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and the last two weeks in particular, we've looked at some of the ideas uh, related to retaliation and revenge and the way we respond to our enemies and the really difficult call to love our enemies. The idea of loving your neighbor, that, that can be hard enough as it is, but most people can, you know, can, can agree that that's a good thing. But when Jesus then defines neighbor to mean anyone whether they live near you or far away from you, whether you like them or whether they are your enemy, you're called to obey the, and to follow in the example of the radical love of God, even towards them, that's when things get, get tricky. That's when things get rather difficult to, uh, to know how to apply them in a real-world setting, and especially when there's a, a real face, a real situation, a real person who has done genuine harm and wrong to you that, that's it becomes emotional, it becomes difficult, it becomes uh, trying to try to figure out what exactly God wants me to do in this situation. and How is it that I can imitate the love of Christ in such a way? Because there's also the fear that if I forgive or if I love even this person, then that will just give them uh, freedom to continue to do any sort of wickedness they want. And wickedness will go on unchecked. And so part of that fear that we have, I mean, it's, it's rooted in real-life experiences. There are people who take advantage. Uh, in fact, that was one of the things that early Christians were mocked for by their pagan counterparts is because it was so easy to take advantage of Christians. They were so generous that people who uh, would go and they would receive help, help from them, uh, even people who they didn't think were worthy or deserving of it, and they would mock the Christians for being easy to dupe, for being overly generous, for being people who uh, you could easily take advantage of. Well, there's a way in which you can look at the story of Christianity and and you can see some of that. I mean, you can look at the life of Jesus and you can say that he was someone who, though, yes, he could have called upon 10,000 angels to come and rescue him or legions upon legions of angels uh, to come and rescue him. Jesus ended up being mocked and ridiculed and suffering and dying on the cross. To the world, that looks like weakness. It looks like failure. It's absolute foolishness, and it's a stumbling block. And that's, the, that's what Paul says. Like that's, that was one of the difficulties of evangelism, was, was if you're going to go to Jews, he says, it's a stumbling block, the message of the cross. And if you go to Gentiles, it's complete foolishness. But to those of us who are called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And, and uh, you know, to us, I think we're so used to the message of the cross that it doesn't, it's not scandalous to us like it was. That was a really hard message to preach uh, because the cross in, in the first century didn't mean love. It didn't mean the, the radical, self-sacrificial love of God to save humanity. When people see a cross now, that's all, especially Christians, that's often the picture you get of Jesus loved me so much to do that for me. And even non-Christians, they might not get that view, but they'll think something about Christianity or something. Well, in Rome in the first century, that is not what the cross meant, and that's not what anyone would have thought of when they saw the cross. The cross was an absolute abysmal symbol of failure. Like, the cross was basically a billboard held up by the Roman Empire with a dying body on it saying that we are powerful and you are weak and you should listen to us or this will be your fate. It was a way of saying that we're in charge and you're not. It was a, it was a power symbol. Uh, and, and, and so when you look at that, it's easy to say, well, what 
if we all go to the cross, then what's the future of Christianity going to look like? It's not going to look too great. If we don't stand up against our persecutors, then they'll win. And so there's that genuine fear that I think can, can arise. And that's one of the reasons why this morning we talked about living in the way Jesus calls us to. It really does take faith in God. It takes faith in God that, that you can overcome your enemies even without resorting to their tactics. It takes faith in God to say you can genuinely overcome and Christianity can survive even under the threat of persecution without fighting back. It takes a tremendous amount of faith in God to say that God will avenge and God will make things right. And a day of judgment, a day of resurrection is coming where even if I suffer now, the sufferings that I feel now are unworthy to be compared with the glories that are set before us. Like all of those things take tremendous faith in God. And so it's not an easy thing to do, and you really do have to trust, because sometimes it's hard to see how this is a winning recipe. How is the cross a winning recipe in this life? The cross looks like a failure. It looks like a loss. But remembering that the story doesn't end at the cross is also really important. There is a resurrection, and there is a new world coming. So with all of that said, I want to read a passage from Romans chapter 12. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and, and we read it uh, last week. But uh, it, it's, it's one where Paul, I think, sounds so much like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It's giving some very practical uh, ways to live a transformed life for the church in Rome. Uh, one of the, if you read through all of Romans, uh, you, once you get to chapter 12, you'll notice a sudden shift in the book. Paul does some... some detailed theological uh, uh, exegesis of some really uh, crucial Old Testament passages in the first 11 chapters of Romans. What that means is basically Paul is digging into his Bible and he's explaining some concepts and some things that uh, are easy to, to miss. And he goes in there and he's explaining how if you were to look at the Roman church, it looks mostly Gentile. There are Jews there, but it looks largely Gentile. And a lot of Jews are going to be asking the question, wait a minute, I thought we were the chosen people of God, and now he's handing it over to the Gentiles. But I can go back to the Old Testament. I can find promises that are supposed to endure forever that he made to us. Has God been unfaithful to his promises? How is it that Jews and Gentiles are uh, supposed to be joint heirs and fellow members of the same family when God promised that to us? And so Paul is going to be demonstrating uh, through a proper understanding of the Old Testament— how it is that Jews and Gentiles are actually supposed to fit together into this family of God. And this is not an aberration from what God's uh, original intention was. This has always been God's original intention. And after making that point, one of the, the primary ways he gets there is by demonstrating the unparalleled radical grace of God that forgives both of you and puts you into this one family. And, and when you have that kind of grace that washes away sins and that equalizes you with other people so that one isn't greater than the other, that removes any possibility of boasting or arrogance. And it, in humility, makes you one family in love through the cross of Jesus. But what that then causes us to do, and this is where you get to chapter 12, is to live differently in the world of which we are now a part. To live differently as part of this family. Romans 12, and, and through the end of the book, describes what a transformed life looks like. Not being conformed to this world, but being transformed. And when you get to the end of Romans 12, you get this beautiful picture of what that transformed life looks like. And like I was saying, it looks a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. So when you get to, to Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, Paul writes, and we're going to read through verse 21, 
Uh, because really our lesson is going to come from chapter 13. But, but we're kind of setting the stage right here. Romans chapter 9 verse 21, or through 21, sorry. Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 21. Uh, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. By the way, pay attention to the words evil and good. They'll appear a couple of times uh, in the next little while. Um, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God as it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a beautiful section. And I think it it gets to the heart of the Christian ethic, particularly with how you treat one another as fellow Christians, and even with how you treat outsiders, and even how you treat persecutors, people who are not only ambivalent to the movement or, 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 uh, or you know, unconcerned about the movement, but people who are actually actively against Christianity. This tells you how to respond to all of those types of people. And the thing that it has in common is you respond to every one of them with love and with goodness in the hope and in the, the trust that through God, the goodness that we bring into this world is more powerful than the evil that they bring in. If love and hatred have a battle, love is stronger. If good and evil have a battle, good is stronger. And that's why you don't become overcome with evil. When you respond to evil with evil, evil wins. But you overcome evil with good. If you go down to verse 8 of chapter 13, he continues these same types of ideas, uh, getting uh, really to the root of what the, the ethics of Jesus is all about. And the passage that we've been talking about, about loving your neighbor as yourself. He says in verse 8, So owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so that that whole section we read at the end of Romans 12 about that transformed life, it's telling you how to to truly love your neighbor as yourself. And he's describing how even like all of the other Ten Commandments that you— even all the other commandments you can think of. uh, Think about the ones that Jesus specifically quotes in the Sermon on the Mount, like you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. Those things, if you love your neighbor as yourself— 
that kind of takes care of those because you don't murder the guy that you love and you don't commit adultery uh, with someone. You don't commit adultery with someone you love. You also don't uh, cheat on the, the spouse of someone that you love. Like, like all of those are acts that deny the genuine love that God calls us to have for one another. You don't steal from someone that you love. And so if you get love right and you get love the way Jesus calls you to have it, then it solves so many problems that are otherwise out there in the world. And that's why Jesus is trying to define love for us in a way that will take away so many of the ailments that you see. I mean, really, if everyone practiced the love that Jesus teaches, it would be a whole lot easier to look out and to see the kingdom of heaven on earth, to see the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. When you didn't have so many of the the pains and the heartaches and the crimes and the sins that we commit against one another, love solves those things. And that's why it's it's the ethical ideal that Jesus is trying to bring us towards. And so that all I think is is crucial to Paul's message here. What I wanted to talk about uh, in the lesson tonight is uh, a section that I skipped right there in the middle. It's kind of a strange section because it seems to not fit in too well uh, contextually with what Paul has been talking about. In fact, I kind of read it as like a big parenthetical statement. Paul is writing about the idea of this transformed life and how to, to love one another and how to overcome evil with good and, and how to love your neighbor as yourself and all of these things, how to abhor that which is evil and cling to that which is good. And, and But right in the middle of it, he launches off into this like eight verse or seven verse discussion about the the government and the Christian responsibility to the government. And then he goes right back into the idea of of love and how love is the fulfillment of the law. And because of that, uh, if you read like commentaries, you know, there's... There's different ways, I guess, of reading the Bible. And some people read the Bible without paying a lot of attention to context. So things like this don't catch them off guard. They just read verse, 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 and like, oh, this verse is about love. This verse is about the government. This verse is about this. And it doesn't really throw them. Some people pay a lot of attention to context, and they think, how did Paul end up here? Uh, Like, what led from this discussion about love to this discussion about the government back to the discussion about love? And what does, what does the Roman government have to do with this? And, and how am I supposed to apply that in my life today? And, and I think those are some, some real questions. Um, and so I I love to see, uh, the way that people try to, try to read this and, and make it fit. I'll tell you what I, how, how it makes sense to me that Paul makes this jump. And I do think it's kind of a side point. It's, it's kind of, a a rabbit that he chases for just a minute, but it gets to that question that I started off talking about, saying, if we really do act the way that Jesus is telling us to, doesn't that just mean that evil can run rampant in this world? Doesn't that, if, if we don't resist the evil person, but if someone slaps us on one cheek, we turn the other to him also. If we never pay back evil for evil to anyone, if we never take our own revenge, but we leave room for the wrath of God, okay, I get it. On the day of judgment, he'll make things right. But what about until then? Uh, is evil just supposed to, to win constantly always until then? And, and so what, how do you really live in a world like that? And I think that might be one of the reasons Paul is going to launch off into this, this little discussion right here about the government. Because he's going to mention one of the purposes of the government 
is to keep that from happening in this world. And so Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7 becomes an interesting conversation about the government. And it becomes a conversation about the government in a way that is different than the way most of the Bible talks about it. Like if you're reading about the nations, the beasts, the empires in the Bible, almost every one of them is described as wicked and is discussed as, as uh, being opposed to God. I mean, that, that's pretty constant from the very beginning of the Bible, whether you're talking about like the first city, like whether you're talking about the Tower of Babel, which is Babylon, or you get into the, the big cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you get into Egypt, or you get into Assyria. Or, like, it's like every time you meet a, a mighty nation, it's an evil one. Even Rome, by the way, who he's going to be talking about here, if you read other parts of your Bible, if you read the book of Revelation, like they're not the hero. They're not the, the faithful servant of God who's going out and doing his will. Um, you know, like the, the word that's used here to describe uh, the, the, the governing powers is it's the deacon of God. It's like, it's like well, that's, that's true. It's God's servant to go out there and to do good in the world. That's, that's not what you would expect. That goes against the grain of what most of the Bible says. And so it's a really interesting and unique passage. Um, it's also a passage that I think, that I think some people um, elevate very much, and it becomes one of the only passages that they use when they think about uh, the government. And, and, and I think that we need to be careful doing that because uh, there are exceptions. If you read the rest of the Bible, the, what is said here is not always true of all governments. Uh, and, uh, and that's something we need to be aware of and keep in mind as we read it. So, so we're going to read through Romans chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 7. But as we go through this, I want us to keep a couple of things in mind. And these, these are going to be helpful for us to keep this passage, I think, in its proper place uh, in our minds. Is number one, we're going to be talking about the government. But know this, and this is true right now. This is true uh, during an election year next year. This is true whether you are in the United States or any country in the world. There is never anything that a governing ruler or king or president or lord or whatever can say that will dethrone Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate king over and above any governing authorities, no matter what, always and forever. Amen. And so that's a really important thing to know uh, right off the bat as we begin to read this. Secondly, I would say, however you interpret this passage, do not interpret it as though it is uniquely about your own country. It's not. Uh, every Christian in every nation has the same passage. And whether it's the country you live in or the country you're at war with, you both got to apply this passage. Uh, whether it's the Roman Empire or the United States of America, you both have to find a way to apply this passage. And so sometimes what we can do is we can we can uh, read this passage with red, white, and blue glasses on, and uh, we can we can see our own country and we can see our own thing. And we try to try to interpret it in in that light, and I think sometimes that can lead us astray. Uh, remember, this is a passage that was written a long time ago under a very different government, and it applies to every Christian living under any government. And so, uh, keep that in mind as you go through it. Number three, I would say remember. That in the Bible, and I already said this, but governments, including and especially Rome, who is the ruling power right now, 
in the Bible are usually wicked. Um, they are usually described as, as beasts that are predators and that seek in power and destroy and use violence to, to perpetuate their will on this earth and they conquer. Uh, that's often the picture of the, the world powers. And so keep that in mind as you go through it because that, that tells you that a, a particular aspect of government is being looked at here rather than uh, government in general or as a whole. Uh, and so however you interpret it, it must be consistent with what the rest of the Bible, the grand narrative of Scripture, says about uh, our role with the government and the governing authorities. Um, also remember that Paul has a Bible that we call the Old Testament, that he reads a lot. And when he's writing this, he's probably writing it with, with some of those Old Testament frameworks in mind. Just one of the examples is uh, he will use the word servant to talk about the governing authorities. He'll say that they are a servant of God sent out to do his will, basically. But that language of a well-known evil empire being the servant of God is not unique to Paul right here. That comes from other passages in the Old Testament. For example, Jeremiah 25, verses 9 and following, talks about Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, literally calling him the servant of God. And one of the things that God's servant is doing is they're not being good, obedient, faithful worshipers of God. That's not what Babylon's doing, and that's not what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. But they are going to destroy Jerusalem, and they are going to destroy his people. And you think, well, why are they doing that? Well, it's because his people have been doing a lot of evil. And one of the things that God is using Babylon to do is to go and to punish that evil. So one of the ways that God uses his servant or these governing powers is to punish evil. And you say, well, but Babylon was wicked too. Yeah, that's right. So the next thing God's going to do is then punish Babylon. Uh, even though they're his servant, it doesn't mean they're pleasing to him. Even though they're his servant, it doesn't mean they're good and righteous. It means that they are accomplishing an aspect of his will, and he's still going to hold them under judgment. In fact, I, wanna, I just want to read quickly uh, Jeremiah chapter 25 and some of what Jeremiah says about this. It's interesting how quickly he moves from Babylon being the servant of God to Babylon being punished and overthrown by God. Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 8 through 11 describes how God is going to use Babylon to punish Judah and Jerusalem. He says in verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, this is Jeremiah 25 verse 8, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against these nations around it. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them uh, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness uh, and the, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And the whole land will be a desolation and a horror. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. All right, so that's where you get your, your 70 years uh, exile right there. All right, but then you look at verse 12, and then he says, then 
I will, it will be when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for the iniquity uh, in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all of which is written in the book which Jeremiah has prophesied against the nations. And then he says that other nations will make slaves of them. So like, in one verse, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is my servant that I'm using to go punish these nations. And then once they're punished for 70 years, I'm going to punish Babylon. Why? Because being God's servant does not mean that he's pleasing to God. It means that God is using them for a particular purpose. And I think that's the language that Paul is going to be picking up on here in Romans. He's going to be talking about, just like Babylon was used to punish evil, God can use Rome for the same thing. And why is that important for our discussion of loving our neighbors ourselves? Well, because if I'm not supposed to take my own vengeance, and I'm supposed to leave it to the wrath of God, how is God going to, uh, when God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, how is he going to do that? Well, on the one hand, I do think the end of time, eschatological judgment is a part of that. But Paul moves right from saying that into this discussion about the government where Paul will write, like, for example, um, verses uh, 3 and 4. Paul says, For the rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do, uh, do you want to have no fear of authority? Well, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God or a servant of God uh, to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. And then notice these lines. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the word avenger, wrath, and evil are all coming from the end of chapter 12, where he says, never repay evil for evil. Never take your own revenge. And when he says uh, that... uh, that uh, leave room for the wrath of God. Like he, he tells you in chapter 12, Christians, never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. As it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The word uh, revenge, vengeance, and avenger, those are all the same word in Greek. One's a verb, one's an adjective, and one's a noun, but they're all, they're all from the same Greek word. And they're used to tell Christians what not to do leave it for God to do. And then you get to chapter 13, and he says that God does that through governing powers. That's one of the ways that God does punish evildoers. That's one of the ways that God does exercise his wrath is through people like Nebuchadnezzar. You see that in the Old Testament. It's through like the Roman Empire. And so as you read through this, uh, there's actually a particular contrast taking place between what Christians in the kingdom of heaven are called to do and what God does through the beast and through the the empire and through the governing authorities. And what you see is God is actually over them both. And Christians are called to live one way that shows the, the love of God, but he also uses those beasts. Even though they are wicked and even though they themselves will be destroyed, God can use them as his servants to accomplish good in this world also. There are times that God uses evil even to accomplish good. Uh, You see that in the book of Genesis pretty clearly. That's one of the the famous lines at the end of Genesis that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I think God can do that very same thing with the Roman Empire. I think he can do that with with a, a lot of governing authorities. So contextually, how does this passage fit in? 
Well, uh, with, with Romans 12, well, I think there's, there's two ways in particular. One of them is he tells Christians, don't take your own revenge, leave room for the wrath of God. And then he tells them how God exercises his wrath and how God uh, exercises his vengeance. And one of the ways he does that is through the empire. The other one is if you were telling Christians, don't be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good, and you're talking about the evil, well, one of the big questions of evil that's going to be over their heads is, well, what about the evil Roman governing authorities that persecute Christians that hate it? He just told us to, to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not hate. Well, the Roman Empire persecuted Christians. Like, like, so, so what do we do with them? And verse 13, in, uh, or sorry, chapter 13, I am not clear at all tonight. I hope, I hope you guys are following. I know what I'm trying to say, but I feel like my words are jumbled. <laughs> Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who, which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So, so he then, right after saying, uh, overcome evil with good, I think the governing authorities are one of those evils that he's talking about there. And he's saying, well, how do you, how do you respond to them? And he's telling you, don't resist them. Uh, like, armed resistance is not the call of Christians. Rising up against the government and plotting against the government and government overthrow and those types of things are not—this this is actually the same language that Jesus was using in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, do not resist the evil person. You, you, you don't resist, you overcome, and you don't—you don't—you don't—you're not passive towards them, but rather you, you do good, and you overcome their evil with good. And so as there are governing authorities, you don't treat them as the enemy to be hated— you treat them as, okay, if they exist, then that means that God, who's over all, can use them for some good. And it's my responsibility to be subject to them, not to resist and fight against them, but to be as law-abiding, law-abiding a citizen as I possibly can be. And God can actually use them for good. Like, even in the Roman Empire, you weren't allowed to just go murder and, and rape and steal and, and do horrible things like that. Like, there was still punish, there was still law and order, and God used the Roman Empire to do that. There still was uh, wrath that took place, and God could use the Roman Empire to do that. He didn't tell Christians to do that in the end of chapter 12. He's very clear what he tells Christians to do, but he does say he uses empire uh, on occasion to do that type of thing. So, verses 5 through 7 uh, he, he continues this discussion, and he says, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. So, so be in subjection to the governing authorities. It's necessary, not only because of wrath, like you don't want their wrath turned against you, uh, and, and not only uh, because they help uh, to bring the just wrath of God into the world, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So render to them what is due. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear is due. And honor to whom honor is due. If you're going to owe something, don't owe anything to anyone except to love one another, is what he says in verse 8. That's how he moves from that discussion back into love. Now, as you read this, and you're thinking, okay, so, so I get that... Um, there are times, like when, when you read, you know, verse, verse 6, 
For because of you, uh, or sorry, verse 5, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but because of conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. The very thing I think he's talking about is, is the praise of good, the punishment of evil. Now, can you find examples in world governments, in our government, in the Roman government, in Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 40s, like you can just pick your government you want to look at, where they didn't do this job very well, where they thwarted what God wanted them to do? Yes. Uh, governments have, a, have, just like God using Babylon and calling them his servant, and then immediately after saying that they're going to punish for 70 years, saying, I'm going to punish them, governments often don't do what God has called them to do. Governments often fail to punish evil, or they'll punish Christians for being Christians rather than for anything evil. You know, it's, I mean, you, you can, when Paul is saying, if you don't want to fear the government, just do what's good. And, and by and large, that is a true thing. Like, I, I don't want to get a ticket, so go the speed limit. That's generally true, right? If you don't, you don't want to go to jail for bank robbery, don't rob any banks. That, that's, you, can, you understand the logic there. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that governments are batting a thousand when it comes to morality and ethics. It doesn't mean that there aren't people punished for things that they didn't do. It doesn't mean that there's no persecution against Christians. That was very real. And so Paul is not talking, I don't think, about everything every government has ever done is good in the eyes of God. Uh, and sometimes I think people have a tendency to read this as though, um, you know, to, to, to praise their government perhaps more than I think Paul is actually calling us to. There are, Jesus is king and Lord above all. Where you can, as much as possible, as long as it does not conflict with the will of Jesus, you submit to your governing authorities and don't resist them. You be as faithful to them as you can be because they, they are there because of God. And God can actually use them to accomplish good. And oftentimes he does accomplish good through, through governing authorities. And so, and so by all means, that's what you should do. What Christian's responsibility to the government in this passage? You be in subjection to them and don't resist them. You pay your taxes and you give honor to whom honors do. As a matter of fact, uh, in, in First uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter is going to tell Christians to honor all people and honor the king. You know, like even, even a wicked king, you, you, just like Jesus says you don't get angry and insult people, don't do that to the king. Treat him with honor and respect because he is the king. Whether you're talking about the president, whether it's a president you like or don't like, you treat them with respect and dignity. Um, there's no benefit that comes from you insulting someone. There's no—God isn't honored by it. I mean, do, is God honored by me using childish language to make fun of or say evil things about another person? No, not really. Uh, but at the same time, and this is also an important part of the Bible's story about the Christian relationship to the government, what is the fulfillment of the law? Love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, in verse 10. Um, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. There may be times when governments tell you to do things that are unjust. In the Roman Empire, you can come up with examples like uh, worship the emperor. That's a pretty clear one. Uh, you don't do that because Jesus is king overall. But I would say the same thing is true in instances where the government is telling you to do things that are not an exercise of love towards your neighbor. Um, you know, if you had a neighbor who was Jewish and uh, living in, in Germany or in France or in, in the 1930s and the people are being rounded up, I don't think you have to obey your government by turning them in. Why? 
because they're your neighbor and you love them instead of listening to your governing authorities. Uh, As Christians, we have a different king. And there are going to be times, perhaps even in our current world and our situation, where you have to really ask yourself, okay, am I truly exercising love of neighbor? Am I living as though Jesus is truly king? Or am I, perhaps out of fear or comfort, just going along with what, uh, what the powers that be are telling me to do? Remember, they can do some good. They should be honored because of that. Pay your taxes. That's not a, you know, you, you not liking the government isn't a reason to, to, to not pay your taxes. Be a subject to them. Obey them whenever possible. But never forget the first point that we made. There's nothing any king or governor or government or world power or nation or empire can do to dethrone Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you've made him the king and lord of your life. So serve him over and above anything else. And, uh, and so that's, that's my little brief dive into Romans 13. Uh, if there's anyone here uh, tonight who uh, you look at your life and maybe there are sins that uh, you are struggling with and you would like to be forgiven, you would like the help and prayers of the church, uh, we would love to help you. We'd pray for you. We can take those to God. And if there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian tonight, please let that be known. You can come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.